Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today's episode is focused on a topic that has been keeping higher ed leaders up at night for many years, namely, how to help ensure their institutions are financially sustainable. The fall enrollment dip isn't helping matters any, and despite a record-setting year for endowment growth, their quest remains as daunting as ever. Today's guests look at both sides of the institutional budget ledger to examine possible areas for cost-cutting as well as potential sources of revenue growth. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Jeff Martin. I'm a senior director on the strategic research team. I spend a lot of my time actually with university fundraisers, and I'm the principal architect behind a new initiative we have called the Revenue Health Index. Uh, so I am delighted to be here with you today to talk about revenue, cost, and financial sustainability in higher education. I'm not going it alone, though. I'm joined by my colleague, Scott Winslow. I'll let Scott introduce himself. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing well, Jeff. Thank you very much. Uh, Scott Winslow, Senior Director on our Research Advisory Services team. So uh, I spend my time talking with our uh, partners trying to offer advice. What do we think they should do based on the problems and challenges they face? And my sort of corner of the uh, the uh, higher ed terrain is actually the administrative function. So finance, HR, procurement, IT, facilities, research administration, uh, all things having to do with spending money at, uh, at university. So Jeff and I today, I think, are going to come at the issue of financial sustainability really from a revenue and a cost or efficiency perspective. So happy to join the conversation and uh, share what I have been hearing. Wonderful. Thank you, Scott. So this conversation, I'd say, is happening happening at an auspicious time for higher education as the country has, quote unquote, opened back up. I know there was a lot of optimism about students returning to campus and hopefully some of the tuition dollars that colleges and universities lost across the past year due to students not enrolling, would start coming back. Uh, but I say it's an auspicious time to have this conversation because just across the past couple of days, National Student Clearinghouse came out with their analysis of how fall 2021 has trended, and it's not looking pretty right now. Uh, big decreases across higher education, especially in the nonprofit sector, although not hit nearly as hard as, as the two-year sector. Um, Again, the for-profit sector. But Scott, I, I was hoping you might be able to give us a little bit of insight. The, the tuition lifeline that many institutions were crossing their fingers for doesn't seem to have materialized. What will this mean for the business model? What will this mean for the balance sheet for higher education? What sorts of choices and trade-offs will university leaders have to make in the face of diminishing tuition revenue? Unhappy and unpleasant choices are usually the uh, options here. Uh, universities, colleges, universities, higher education writ large is a relatively straightforward business model, but it's mostly a fixed cost model. So most of the costs at a university are fixed from year to year. And the vast majority of the operating expenses within a uh, typical university's financial uh, statement are people. They are the instructional staff that we have. They're the administrative staff who support them. They're the advisors and the, the uh, others who are helping students. And if there is less revenue 
we need to have less expense. Um, and obviously, as, as you mentioned, the biggest revenue driver for a college or university is tuition, tuition dollars. And those tuition dollars flow directly from students, uh, students coming and wanting to learn at our institutions. And as you said, the, the National Student Clearinghouse numbers just came out. I've not had a chance to go uh, deep into the report. I've looked at the, the headlines here. And just looking at the fall 2021 numbers, total enrollments down 3.2% uh, across the uh, 12-month period from fall of 2020 to fall of 2021. 3.2% fewer students, roughly, roughly, is going to translate to 3.2% less revenue. And uh, 3% 3 here, 3% there. You know, as they say, uh, soon you're talking about real dollars. Now, I know this past year, the blow from diminished tuition revenue was offset to a great degree by federal dollars. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your expectation of whether that lifeline will come higher education's way again or not? Uh, predicting the future is always a little bit of a dicey game uh, because I don't have, you know, 2020 insight into what will happen next week or next year, um, not even what's going to happen next uh, next day. The politics of this uh, are that there are a number of different bills that have been put forward that will provide funding for colleges and universities. Uh, community college, tuition-free community college was one of the choices, uh, increasing the amount of money that will go toward uh, HBCUs and uh, minority-serving institutions coming up with a number of different mechanisms to direct more funding to colleges and universities. Uh, laudable uh, objective, trying to make sure that there are more resources available to educate more uh, Americans. The problem is that it is one among many competing priorities that uh, legislators are weighing. And the political reality is that uh, it, Trade-offs will need to be made and choices will need to be made among those uh, requests. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a pessimist here. Uh, laudable as I think these goals are, I tend not to put a lot of uh, stock in expecting them to actually pass and be funded. So uh, while the pandemic last year uh, saw lots of funds flow to colleges and universities, and some schools are still trying to spend those funds, uh, I don't expect that the same uh, degree of funding will find its way to colleges and universities in the new bills that are under um, consideration. But that's my opinion. You can find people who will be very optimistic and expect that those funds will uh, flow to institutions. You know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I think if uh, I could predict the actions of uh, Congress across the river from where I live, I'd, I'd probably in a pretty good position. But as you said, that's a bit of a crystal ball activity. One of the things that jumped out at me from the National Student Clearinghouse numbers, though, a bit of a silver lining, it's definitely a lining. It's not the not the heart of it, but silver nonetheless, is that we're seeing, we seem to be seeing pretty strong and persistent growth the graduate level of comparing fall 2019 to fall 2021 graduate certificate Enrollments are up 9%, master's enrollments up 5.6%. First professional degrees, which actually had 
a bit of a dip in fall 2020. This year jumped 2% for total 1.3% growth from 19 to 21. I anticipate a lot of institutions are going to be eyeing that adult serving uh, post-baccalaureate market certificates, master's degrees in particular, as big growth opportunities. I know in a lot of the conversations I've been having with the university leaders around this new revenue health index that we launched, which looks at various revenue sources and university priorities, graduate education, the master's portfolio, those have been topics of intense interest and a lot of planned activity as well. From your perspective, I know you focus a lot on cost side of higher education, and you mentioned higher ed as a fixed cost business. Are these sorts of degrees, is a graduate certificate, is a master's, new master's program, something that a university leader can expect to stand up off of their existing infrastructure? How much investment does it really, if you're eyeing a particular terrain where a university doesn't currently have uh, a post-baccalaureate program of any sort to offer, graduate program of any sort to offer, uh, is this going to add a, a lot to the costs of the university if you want to want to launch something here? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, probably not the expert you'd come and talk to at EAB about this, but I can give you my opinion and what I've seen from the institutions I've spoken with. Uh, if you already offer a degree, undergraduate degree, or uh, uh, have some academic expertise in a particular curricular area, obviously much easier to launch a program because you have the, the pre-existing expertise to be able to offer uh, a, a degree program there. Um, the amount of investment required to launch a new program is typically underestimated by university business leaders. The marketing attempt, the marketing uh, expense that's required to launch a program, you can spend as little or as much as you like. Obviously, if you spend more, the expectation is that you will be more successful. You can spend less and still be successful, right? You can you can make a, a low budget film and it can become a blockbuster, or you can spend a, you know hundreds of millions of dollars on special effects and nobody comes to see it. Um, much the same effect is in play with the marketing of new programs to try and draw students and their their tuition revenue to you. The uh, challenge is that this is a very competitive space. There are lots of schools all eyeing what you just uh, pointed to. It's a growing market. And not surprisingly, independent institutions who are looking for money are all looking at an opportunity. So um, it may be more challenging going forward to try and realize revenue in this area. One question I wanted to ask you, um, right? obviously, uh, your uh, sort of area of expertise where you spend lots of your time is looking at uh, fundraising, right? looking at advancement. And obviously, across the last uh, year or more, we've seen a marked rise in the overall stock market values. Uh, endowment uh, returns are up. Overall value of endowments are up. If I'm a university president and I'm looking at my revenue streams, one of the revenue streams I'm looking at is the funding that can come off of those uh, uh, capital markets gains. Is that going to be a, a, a silver bullet here, or is that only for a few institutions? Great question, Scott. The truth of the matter is that while endowments have grown very quickly, 
very few institutions stand to benefit from that growth. And that's because most endowments, where institutions have endowments, and that is a relatively small number of them, most endowments are very small. Uh, it's something like uh, only about 40%, 45% of institutions even have an endowment. And of those that do, 50% have an endowment of less than $20 million. So for most colleges and universities, uh, we're talking about a baseline endowment that's very, very small. Even if you're posting double-digit endowment growth, it doesn't add up to all that much in the grand scheme of things. And what you have to consider is that the endowment isn't really a pool of money that you can cash out at a moment's notice. For most institutions, they're spending about 4, 4.1% of their endowment every single year. And even then, many of those dollars are restricted to specific purposes. So we're talking about smaller numbers multiplied by smaller numbers multiplied by smaller numbers. Uh, If you're a Harvard or a Yale, you're probably popping open a bottle of champagne. Uh, But for everyone outside of uh, that top group of institutions, there are far fewer gains to be had here. Right. So by and large, uh, if you're expecting uh, revenue support or uh, extra dollars to show up because of what's been happening in the stock market, unless you are one of the kind of brand name institutions, by and large, that's not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There certainly will be more money next year that these institutions can fund their operations with, but it might be measured in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe around a million or two. That's it for institutions with bigger endowments. If you're looking at $100 million plus, you know, 4% on a $100 million endowment is about $4 million and it's nothing to sneeze at. It's not a silver bullet, but it could fill a bit of a gap between where you are where you are and where you need to be there's of course on top of the endowment question the fundraising question endowments are are fed not just by market growth but by donors dollars as well and the university as a whole increasingly is fed by donors dollars uh, just this past march inside higher ed poll presidents and over 90% of them said that they were eyeing advancement and fundraising, cultivating new donors as a path to revenue growth. It was actually the number one response in the survey. So there's a lot of interest, a lot of activity around fundraising, around advancement. About half of those presidents said they were planning on starting or expanding a capital or comprehensive campaign. So we're keeping a very close eye on the investments these colleges are making to get more fundraisers out there. It's, of course, a a fortuitous time to be putting fundraiser boots on the ground as the concentration of wealth in the United States and the growth of wealth at the very top of the wealth spectrum means that there are more and more major gift opportunities, a lot of mega gift opportunities. Now, headlines made by institutions that you don't traditionally associate with Mega gift fundraising, interesting. And uh, as you were talking, that that uh, put me in mind of one 
aspect of uh, revenue generation that I hadn't given a lot of thought to. But the the rising tide of a lifting stock market obviously means that more people have wealth that they could uh, donate or uh, give to an institution. So is the is the pool of likely donors also expanding as well as the amount that those donors can can uh, potentially gift? Yes, it is. It's funny. We see lots of headlines about more money in fewer hands. I was talking with one of our managing directors just the other day about trends in fundraising prospect populations. And she was under the impression, oh, there are fewer wealthy people out there nowadays than the past. But that actually is not the case. The growth in the market and the flow of wealth towards the top of the wealth spectrum has meant that more and more households are breaking the million-dollar mark, breaking the five twenty-five million-dollar mark. And actually, if you look at the numbers from, for example, Spectrum Insight, a firm that does market analysis about high net worth households, uh, they projected that in 2021, the number of uh, high net worth millionaire households would rise to about 11.6 million. It's about uh, 10% of all U.S. households. Inflation, of course, does play a part in this, but sure. when you uh, when you run the numbers, you find that the the size of the high net worth uh, household population growing far faster than the value of an American dollar is falling. So a lot more fundraising opportunities, and of course, on campus, a lot of uh, needs to which to turn those fundraising dollars. Mm-hmm. A lot of investments in infrastructure. The pandemic, of course, brought a uh, big shift and big investments in new technologies. Scott, in your work with administrative leaders, how have they been navigating all of the different in kind investments they've had to make because of pandemic-induced disruptions? And, and what's their plan for the future? Good question. Uh, the, the investments that schools are making, while uh, they seem large based on on headlines that we've seen. We're investing in new technologies, new uh, ways to interact with students in a virtual fashion, new ways to allow work to take place in a virtual fashion. Um, a lot of the a lot of the technology investments are uh, not as complicated as you think. They're things like Zoom, right? We're using Zoom right now. Uh, they are ubiquitous uh, and they are uh, omnipresent, but they're not terribly expensive. So uh, just looking at technology dollars and saying, oh, my goodness, we're spending a, a, a ton more, that's, that's typically not the case. What I am finding uh, in my conversations with, with cabinets and, and with board members is that they are uh, concerned for the reasons that we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. There's revenue uncertainty. So uncertainty breeds a sense of uh, pulling back, being a little bit more cautious about any expenditures that have, um, you know, year over year consequences. So some of the large dollar investments that we might otherwise wanted to have made, you know, let's put those off for a little bit. Let's let's wait till things settle down and we can kind of get to a, a slightly more steady state. And not to not to um, uh, go on 
too much about the um, one-time investments that have been made. The more present uh, conversations are around the overall efficiency of the institution. I use efficiency um, recognizing that that's probably not the best term of art here, but making sure that the resources we have are being put to their highest possible use to ensure the institution carries out its teaching and learning and service and research mission. That doesn't necessarily mean cutting uh, dollars and cutting people. In many ways, what we're seeing is a recognition that there is a, a trade-off that's often made between the service levels we can provide and the cost of providing those uh, services. It may cost us a little bit more, but the increase in service uh, that we provide to our community is well worth the dollars that we've put into those um, those those areas. Some of the the funding we were talking about earlier, the pandemic funding, has gone to fund some of these um, enhancements to uh, uh, community and campus and uh, institutional activity. So a focus on making sure that every dollar we have brings us the greatest impact uh, is much more of the lens that uh, executives are bringing to the institutions that they oversee. So talk me through what this might look like for any given university if I were to parachute into a you know, public university in the middle of a state, in the middle of this country. Um, where might... Uh, finance leaders, university leaders mm -hmm. be turning their sites. Uh, what changes would they be making to what campus looks like and what it feels like to be a student or staff member right, right. at that campus? Uh, it, you know, it's classic. It depends. Different schools are, are experiencing different things. But to give you kind of a broad brush, um, on average, this is kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing schools uh, Focus on those areas of expense which account for the largest outlay of resource. And when you look at a university, most of what we spend money on are people. And uh, if you look at a university among people, most of the people we have are instructors. They are instructional staff. That's what we're here to do, uh, to educate the, the next generation in the various academic disciplines that we have. Obviously, there's research and there are um, other uh, service activities that, that uh, universities are, are responsible for. But every university teaches. In looking at the university as um, you know, the, uh, the person responsible for the inflows and outflows of, of, of cash, I want to make sure that I'm using my dollars as effectively as possible in the teaching and learning enterprise. Are we offering some classes to students where, frankly, they're just not showing up because they're not interested in taking those classes? Why do we continue to offer classes that students don't take? Maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, are we appropriately uh, looking at and forecasting what demand will look like for a class that's popular but has multiple sections? Maybe we don't do the seat scheduling as well as we should. And so our sections are you know, 50, 60, 70% full and oh darn, we could have actually not offered two of those sections and we still could have taught all of our students. Maybe we've got some unfunded course releases that we probably shouldn't let continue, but they've been grandfathered in since you know the Clinton administration and the person who granted it isn't at the institution anymore and the faculty members are, are still um, uh, 
continuing with those, those course releases uh, against their time. So there are a number of ways that we can be more judicious in the work that we do to educate our students and the dollars that go into that. And a lot of schools are taking the time to do the, the kind of basic work of examining what they offer, figuring out if it makes sense, and making some choices to, to say, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe it would make more sense to take those dollars and spend them here. I know I've seen some headlines, and I, I think it's something that a lot of folks that we work with have found concern, concerning XYZ University shuttering their German department, closing their history program, laying off tenured faculty. You've touched a couple times on how the costs of higher education by and large are our people. Sure. Uh, is the solution for university administrators to try and reduce payroll? It's, uh, it's not, the solution is not to reduce payroll. The solution is to make sure that the people you are paying are being as effective as possible in advancing the mission of the institution. Every school, doesn't matter which school we're talking about, has some programs that cost more money to teach and some programs that cost less money to teach. It's just the nature of disciplines. Certain disciplines are expensive. Certain disciplines are less expensive. Certain modalities of teaching are less expensive. Certain modalities are more expensive. But every university has a portfolio of academic programs, a number of different degrees that we grant. And the, the job of the, the leaders of the institution is to make sure that that balance is appropriate. We can't have all programs that are expensive to teach because, frankly, we don't have enough money for that. Equally, we shouldn't try and build a university that only has inexpensive programs to teach. That's going to leave out much of the, the curricular interests that our students would want, much of the curricular program that our students have interest in. So working to develop a way to build a portfolio of programs that meets the needs that students have and does so in a financially responsible way frankly, is the, the job of the executives leading these institutions. It's not to cut payroll. It's not to get rid of faculty members. It's not to, um, you know, uh, try to kill the classics or the humanities as a humanities major myself. I definitely don't want to see the disciplines that I love uh, uh, sidelined and uh, removed from, from the uh, academy. What I am trying to do is to make sure that uh, the programs that are offered make sense for the students who are coming to those institutions and can be delivered in a way that doesn't handicap the institution financially. Excellent. Well, I think that's probably a great point to wrap up on. Scott, thank you for joining me today for this, in my opinion, I'm biased, but in my opinion, fascinating discussion. Thank you very Until much. Next time. As well. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we check in with the Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee to find out how year one of EAB's Moonshot for Equity project has been going at UWM. Until then, thank you for your time.